Um, six, uh, the 16th chapter of Revelation, if you have your Bible tonight, you go ahead and turn there with me. Um, we're moving right along in our study, and my goal would be to try to finish Revelation by <laughs> the glorious appearing. Um, <laughs> But by summer, I'd really love to be done by summer, and, and uh, most years we try to take some type of a break over the summer. I know there's a lot of travel schedules. We've got camps and vacation Bible schools and, and all such as that, and so we'll really try to, uh, to, uh, to finish. We've actually been doing pretty good. We've kind of been covering a chapter a week, and so I'd hate to think how long it'd take me to get through the Psalms, but... <laughs> David Jeremiah tells a story from history, it's a factual story, in his uh, volume, The Book of Signs, I don't know if you've got that or not, it's a fantastic book on prophecy, but he talks about how General Douglas MacArthur uh, stood on the deck of the USS Missouri in uh, Tokyo Harbor. The date was September 2nd, 1945, and you know, General MacArthur and his accomplishments. He had just engineered America's hard-fought victory in the Pacific and had witnessed the signatures of the defeated leaders of Japan and that ended the global conflict known as World War II. Well, on this particular day, General MacArthur uttered a profound warning, which he later repeated in the address that he gave before Congress, and this is what he said, uh, we have had our last chance. If we will not devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. It's interesting that he said that just after the Second World War ended. Fast forward from that moment to Friday, May 15, 1981, shortly after he was inaugurated as the 40th president of our country, Ronald Reagan found himself astounded by all of the complexities and the geopolitical situation that is still true of the Middle East, just the uh, conflict that has engulfed the Middle East. The nation of Israel on a teeny tiny strip of land surrounded by well-armed Arab enemies who were splintered like fractured glass, divisions among themselves impossible to reconcile. President Reagan wrote this in his diary on May 15, 1981. He was writing about all the problems involving Lebanon and Syria and Saudi Arabia and Israel, and here's what he said. Sometimes I wonder if we are destined to witness Armageddon. Armageddon. It's a word that really sends shivers up and down one's spine when you think about it. Now, some folks, they don't think of Armageddon being anything beyond a Hollywood blockbuster film, but Armageddon is a word that seems to be at the tip of everyone's tongue, especially now, given what you see happening in Europe, uh, 
and the tensions on the European continent with the situation in Ukraine involving Russia. But I do imagine there are very few adults who are not familiar with this word and all that this word involves. You do a simple Google search of the word Armageddon and you'll discover that it yields 52.3 million results. And you'll find a variety of recent articles written by journalists, some of which have been published in leading publications such as the New York Times and all such as that, but this word Armageddon attached to headlines, talk of World War III, again, likening the situation in uh, Ukraine to similar events that happened in 1939 with Hitler's invasion of Poland. But Dr. Jeremiah says this, he said, why have our national leaders in the 20th and 21st centuries begun to use that doomsday word in their speaking and in their writing. I believe it's because they can see how modern weaponry and international tensions are showing how quickly global equilibrium could get out of control, leading to a cataclysmic war such as the world has never seen before. Armageddon. And you think, well, given the fact that Russia itself is estimated to have upwards of 6,000 nuclear-tipped warheads aimed in our direction, not to mention the number of nuclear warheads that we have aimed in their direction. Nobody wants to see American boots on the ground in Ukraine simply because of this word Armageddon and all that's associated with it. You go to this chapter in Revelation, Revelation chapter 16, we find this word Armageddon used, it's one and only time in the Bible. That's interesting, the word yields 52.3 million Google hits, but it's mentioned one time in the pages of God's Word. And uh, that reference comes from this chapter that we're going to look at tonight. The word itself is really a... Um, a proper noun in Greek that comes from two Hebrew words, har-megedo, har meaning mountain, megedo, which means slaughter. So the word armageddon comes from these two words, which means mount of slaughter. Mount of slaughter. Um, the mountain of Megiddo, this is a real place that's located in the northern part of Israel. And it includes an extended plain that really reaches from the Mediterranean Sea into the northern stretches of Israel. Really what's known as the Jezreel Valley. If you've ever been to Israel and if you've been up toward Nazareth and maybe you've been to Haifa and you've gone east from Haifa, you've passed through the Jezreel Valley, uh, which is the Valley of Megiddo, the Armageddon. Har-Megiddo. It's 18 miles southeast of Haifa, 55 miles north of Jerusalem, only 19 miles from Nazareth. And so uh, I, I read where even Napoleon Bonaparte, he stood at this very place before a battle that ended his quest to conquer the east. And Napoleon said all the armies of the world could maneuver their forces in this vast plain. Now listen to this. 
He said, there's no place in the whole world more suited for war than this place right here. It's the most natural battleground on the face of the planet. There's another view of it looking down from a surrounding hilltop, looking into the valley. Armageddon. Now, chapter 15, we, we saw last week, sort of sets up the events of chapter 16. And if chapter 15 is a prelude to judgment, then Revelation chapter 16 records the plagues of final judgment. And within this chapter, the Apostle John describes the seven final plagues of divine wrath that will one day engulf the whole world, leading up to uh, a final plague, a sixth and seventh plague involving war, at this place, Armageddon. Now, you look back in chapter 15, in just a moment, you'll see what John saw. Uh, he, he, he says in verse 1 of chapter 15, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And that word finished there is a very important word closely akin to the very same word that Jesus himself spoke when he finished his suffering upon Calvary, it is finished. But there, within that context, it was the redemptive plan of God securing our salvation that was indeed finished. But here, these seven final plagues will finish the wrath of God poured out upon man's sin. And a wicked and an unbelieving world that refuses to repent and bow uh, to the Lord in faith. And so you think about how the, 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 the content of Revelation is organized. We've seen this. Begins with the seven seal judgments. The breaking of the seventh seal then leads to the seven trumpet judgments. The seventh trumpet, the sounding thereof, then results in the seven bowl judgments, which are rapid fire Judgments, one right after the other. Bowl implies sudden, swift nature of judgment, something that's poured out. We're not talking about a slow IV drip here, but rather the pouring out rapidly of judgment at the close of the tribulation period. And so chapter 16 records those. In between the transition from the seal judgments, from the trumpet judgments to the bowl judgments, you've got some parenthetical information. Now we're going to see this again in chapters uh, 17 and 18, where John's going to once more, there's going to be a break in the action, and he's going to go back and tell the story of how Babylon, the, the system of the Antichrist, the government of the Antichrist, the cultural and economic system of the Antichrist, how that's going to come undone and come under judgment. And then he's going to get back to the action in chapter 19 after... The battle of Armageddon, we know where that leads and what it will result in. It will not result in the destruction of God's people and the camp of the saints in Jerusalem, but Jesus Christ himself is going to emerge victorious when he appears a second time, and he and the armies of heaven will destroy the Antichrist and the armies of earth. And so that's what the 19th chapter will, will, will uh, describe. But this chapter, Revelation chapter 16, may very well be 
Skip Heitzig says one of the most dark, foreboding chapters in all of the Bible may be the darkest chapter in all of the Bible. And you can be sure that the Holy Spirit intends for a chapter like this to really serve as a warning to people. And these are difficult chapters to preach and to teach, chapters that deal with the subject of wrath and judgment and involve such terrifying signs as we're going to see described here. But this is a warning to people about what will happen in the future so that they might turn to Jesus while they have time and while they have opportunity. And so during the tribulation, we've seen that men and women will have a number of opportunities to turn to God. But sadly, the vast majority of them will not lay hold of those opportunities before Armageddon arrives. So what I'll do is I'll just point out just some information here and... Uh, and then we'll get into the actual text itself. I want to come back to something I said, though, last week. A major lesson that we can take away from this chapter, from chapter 15, from this passage dealing with these plagues, these seven bold judgments, it's a reminder that God is to be worshipped for all that he is and all that he does, and yes, that includes his divine judgment of sin. All that God does is to the praise of his glory. God is glorified in all that he does. We tend to think, well, love, this is the only attribute of God that brings him glory. No, no, love is essential to who he is. He's not part love and part something else. He's all love. But the Bible also says that he's all light and he's holy. And holiness is the one attribute of God that's thrice repeated. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And wrath is not so much one of his attributes, but wrath is the expression of God in the upholding of his righteousness and his holiness. By virtue of who he is, God has to punish sin for what it is. It's an offense to his holiness. It's contrary to his nature. And when we talk about wrath, we're talking about God's settled disposition against all that is not in keeping with his character, his holiness. You say, well, what about me? God's not, he's not poured out wrath on me for my sin. Well, if you are in Christ, he sure has. Because what do you think Jesus did for you on the cross? He, he suffered the wrath of God. So what did he save you from when he died for you on the cross? He saved you from God. He saved you from divine wrath. He saved you from your sin and the consequences of your sin. He, he, he's the, the mediator between God and man. He's the one who reconciles sinful man with holy God. How does he do that? He does it through his mediatory work, through his death in your place. The scripture says that he drank the cup of God's wrath as my substitute so that I could be forgiven and so that I could experience mercy. And so that I could walk in the newness of life and experience grace. So yeah, your sin has already been met with the fierceness of God's wrath. But Jesus drank that cup for you. But for those who refuse Jesus and those who are not in Jesus, the only thing that they have waiting for them is that cup of wrath. Because sin must be dealt with. God does not merely wince at it. He does not ignore it. He does not sweep it under the rug. He has to deal with it. And he will. So he's to be worshipped. 
Now, in this passage, notice with me, number one, what I'm calling the release of divine wrath. And that's what we're going to see. And I want to read, and in, in, we'll read really verses uh, one through seven here, and then we'll stop. Verse, six, uh, verse one, uh, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Now remember, back up in chapter 15, John sees this vision of these angels in heaven coming out of the sanctuary, uh, each one having this bowl, uh, a bowl full of the wrath of God that's to be poured out at its appropriate time. Verse 2 says, the first angel went and he poured out his bowl on the earth. So now the scene has changed. We see the, the source of wrath in chapter 15. We, John's given a glimpse of some things happening in heaven. And now he's seeing how that's being played out on the earth. The first angel poured his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Isn't that kind of ironic? You take the devil's mark and watch it take its toll out on your body. Maybe a correlation between the sores on their body and what they thought would be the instrument of their salvation. The very mark that they thought would buy them freedom actually seals their fate and their doom. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord, God, the almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we'll stop there. The other plagues are mentioned also uh, in, in the following verses. But these seven plagues that this chapter describes, these are really the precursors, or they had precursors rather, uh, two other sets of plagues in the Bible, which sort of serve as patterns that point to this future final judgment that's being described here. Now think about this. Think about the similarities that we see here with what we read about in Exodus chapter 7 through 12, where God poured out plagues of wrath upon the Egyptians. And then think about the seven trumpet judgments, what we've already seen uh, will be characteristic of the first part on into the second part of the tribulation period. And so you see these similarities and these differences in these sets of plagues. In the first plagues in Exodus, these were localized, dealt specifically with one nation, that being Egypt, who held God's people in bondage. Well, the second set of plagues, the trumpet judgments, you go back and you read what we've already seen, you'll discover that that really just resulted in the destruction of one-third of the world meaning that two-thirds of the world up until this point, we get to Revelation chapter 16, are still relatively normal if I could use that word. But you see, this final set of plagues here in chapter 16, the seven bold judgments will affect the entire world. 
Whereas the trumpet judgments where you saw uh, water being turned to blood, it only affects a third of the waters. Notice here that it affects all the water, both the sea, and if that's not enough, the fresh water itself is also poisoned, all of it. So this is, this is describing really a global form of judgment that's engulfing the whole world here as we've come to the close of the tribulation period. And so all three sets of plagues, you, you go back, you can look at them parallel, uh, you'll, you'll notice they involve catastrophe, hail, darkness, but these seven bold judgments sort of bring all of that together, all of those previous judgments together and completely inundate the world, bringing it to the brink of complete and total ruin. And so when we talk about the day of wrath that God has that's stored up for an unbelieving world, this is what that day is going to involve. These very plagues that are being described in this 16th chapter of Revelation. That's what we talk about when we're referring to divine wrath. Now, I talked about this last week. Don't think of this as being God having a, a temper tantrum, and throwing a hissy fit. <laughs> no, this is his settled disposition towards sin and all that opposes his holiness. You say, well, where's that at right now? Why, is, why are we not experiencing that thing right now? You think about all that's going on in the world. You think about evil and you think about uh, true injustice and, 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 and manipulation and, and just the evil, bad things that are happening all around the world. Where's God's wrath on those kinds of things now? Folks, listen to me. God is merciful. He's patient. He's slow to anger. Amen. And all of that is being held back by the dam of his mercy. But one day that dam is going to burst. And the floodwaters of wrath are going to be released and this 16th chapter of Revelation is, is explaining for us what that is going to look like in, in detail. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's something that Ezekiel 33:11 says. What is it that he would desire? That they turn from their evil ways and so live. But being who he is, God does rejoice in the fact that his righteousness and his justice is upheld when he executes the sentence of the law against those sinners who refuse him. He will be glorified one way or the other. And if God did not oppose sin, if he did not meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath and thereby punish the evildoer, then he wouldn't be a God who's worthy of our worship. If he didn't deal with sin, he wouldn't be a good God. Would you agree that God is good in all that he does? He's perfect in all that he does. If he didn't meet sin in the fierceness of his wrath, then we couldn't say that he's good. And just because it seems like God isn't responding to the evil in the world now, when you see it happening in real time and you wonder, where is God? Folks, let me tell you something. God is he's right where he's always been. He's on the throne, ruling and overruling. And one day, every wrong will be made right. But now is the time for repentance. Now is the age of grace. Now is a time of opportunity for people to turn to him. And trust in him. So you're going to thank God for the mercy of God that's in operation right now in your life and in my life. Mercy is God not giving me what my sin deserves. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. 
And he's, he's done both for me. He's not given me what I deserve. <laughs> I find it ironic that we're now living in a culture that so wants to talk about justice, 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 while at the same time, we don't want to show any mercy to anybody. Well, at the same time, we are absolutely descending into a moral cesspool as a society and culture of people. Just think of the hypocrisy of this justice, justice, justice. The world doesn't know what it wants. It doesn't know what it's talking about when it uses that term. An unbelieving, godless culture takes that word, hijacks it, redefines it to mean something totally different than what the Scripture means. And the world's sense of justice is perverse and perverted. But let me tell you something, when God executes justice, you can rest assured that it is true justice as defined by his holy, perfect, righteous character and revealed in his law. But one day this dam of mercy is going to burst wide open and the wrath which is now being stored up, held back, will one day be released and it's going to lead to Armageddon. And that's why the psalmist says this in Psalm 90, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? And in response to that, the very next verse, the psalmist says this, so teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I find it interesting that what serves as the incentive for us to carefully calculate the number of our days and the way that we're living our life is this notion of God's wrath and his anger. Isn't that something? The the Bible says that it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. And and so you you deny this aspect of God's character, and so what you do is you cut your legs out from under you as far as holy living is concerned, as far as pursuing righteousness is concerned. Is our God a God to be loved and worshipped? Absolutely, he is. But man, he's he's a God to be feared. He's a God that we hold up in awe and wonder. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our God is a consuming fire. So this is the final expression of wrath that's been held back throughout the long history of the world, finally released like a flood at the day of the Lord, and that being described right here in these seven bold judgments. Bowls imply sudden, swift wrath. And that's something that's in keeping with other passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where Paul told the Thessalonian church, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You ever had your house broken into? It's one of the most terrifying things that'll ever happen to you. I hope and pray it never happens to you. I think I've told you this before, but Anita and I had our house broken into. Uh, It wasn't too terribly long after we were first married. Interestingly enough, and we were young, we were in our early 20s. We heard an ambulance going down the road and we decided, hey, we ain't got nothing else to do. Let's chase it and see what's going on over here in you know, other side of the county. So we left in a hurry, left the light on. Evidently, somebody was staking out our house that evening while we left because the police estimated that you know, we weren't gone long, but in between the time we were gone, the time we got back, they came in the door, they, they took some valuable items that we had. 
They gave themselves away because they tried using her credit card at a gas station in South Carolina and smile, you're on candid camera. They found him and discovered that he was a church member of the first church I served. That'll bless your heart as a pastor, won't it? Uh But it's a scary thing, but, but, it, but it happens suddenly. It's, it's this idea of something that's swift. It's this idea that's something unexpected. That's the way that the day of the Lord is going to be according to what the scripture says. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 3.10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. You say, preacher, does your theology allow for global warming? (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure that that's not the kind of, it's, it's it's not my Nissan Pathfinder and the emissions from that that's causing the elements to melt with fervent heat. This is the wrath of God that's being described here. This is the undoing of the created order as things are turned in reverse due to the consequences of the curse and man's sin and God's judgment on that. So these rapid fire judgments will happen in just a short period of time, thereby finishing the day of the Lord. And these are supernatural acts of God. So what are these bold judgments? I'll put this graphic back up here on the screen. But the first bold described there in verse number two uh, involves these sores that begin to afflict those who had accepted the mark of the beast. So there's a judgment of God on those that accept the mark of the beast. The second bold judgment <clears throat> described in verse 3, poison seas. The seas turn to blood, leading to the death of all creatures in the sea. Can you imagine what that would be like? You, you, ever, you ever walked on the beach and you know, you came across some dead jellyfish and just the stench of that. Imagine that multiplied many, 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 many times over with the death of sea creatures floating amidst a sea which has turned to blood. It's terrifying to think of. The third bowl, uh, rivers are turned to blood. The fresh water's poisoned. And then, you know, you've got this sort of outburst of worship, verses 5 and 6, the angel in charge, just in case you think God is sort of being this cosmic bully who's picking on everybody. You say, I thought he was a God of love. How in the world could he allow something like this to happen? Well, listen to what the angels, God's vindicated in this, just are you, O holy one. That word just means righteous. You're perfect. You're upright in what you do. This comes after multiple centuries upon centuries of warning and the the waters of judgment being held back as God has been merciful, as God has raised up prophet after prophet, preacher after preacher, pastor after pastor, witness after witness, martyr after martyr, apostle, prophet, ministry of the church. The tribulation, you've got the ministry of two witnesses. You've got the ministry of 144,000 evangelists. Man is without excuse. 
You've got the witness of creation itself that testifies to this all-powerful, omnipotent creator. Every day, you ought to be reminded that you're accountable to a God in heaven with every breath that you take, with every beat of your heart. And the difference between the person who knows God versus the person who doesn't know God, the person who knows God looks at creation and says, oh, what a God who's made this. The person who doesn't know God looks at all of this and worships all of this when it should simply be that which bears witness and serves as evidence to the truth of a creator. Goodness. People say, well, there's no evidence for God. Think of the irony of such a statement. The very fact that you make such a statement is evidence that there is a God. The fact that you question, the fact that you have a rational mind, the fact that you can use logic to come to certain conclusions, the fact that two plus two equals four, and the fact that what goes up must come down. Where do these laws come from? Those laws come from a lawgiver. And this is the lawgiver who's upholding his law. So he's vindicated. He's, he's just in all that he does. You get into verse 8 and you see the fourth bowl. Let's read it. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. So here you have somehow the, the, even the activity of the sun is affected. And by the way, isn't it interesting, these very things that, that John is talking about, that John sees, these are some of the very fears that you hear scientists talk about all the time. Solar flares and earthquakes and climate change and all this stuff. It's almost as if someone has a sense that, you know what? The world as it is is not always going to be as it is. Things are in a state of deterioration. Things are winding down. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. So here you have a judgment of darkness. They cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Now, Verse 15, there's a parenthesis, a little one, but listen to this. Who's speaking here? Behold, I am coming like a thief. <laughs> the day of the Lord is like a thief. Who is it that's, uh, who's coming? It's Jesus. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he might not go about naked and be seen exposed. They assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's the sixth bowl. And then the seventh bowl, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. And the great city, 
It's a reference to Jerusalem. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. So you go back and you look at these bold judgments and you'll notice that the first four bold judgments uh, relate to the natural world as it's come under judgment. Things involving the earth, things involving the sea, things involving the rivers, the sun. Think of creation, think of the created order that's being affected, that's literally being uncreated, it's coming undone. You ever thought about, let me ask you a question. Did you ask God for sunshine when you got up this morning? Now, you might have when you saw the clouds. Say, Lord, just let it be a sun. But I'm talking about, have you asked God, God, would you please, by your omnipotent hand, keep that giant atomic explosion that's 93 million miles from Earth, keep that thing burning just one more day for me, Lord. Would you do that? I guarantee you none of you asked God to do that today. But guess what? God did that today. Uh, uh, what about the, the gravitational forces? What about the, what about the orbit of the earth around the sun? And what about the rotation of the earth on its axis at just the right tilt, at just the right speed so that we can have waves that are pleasant to enjoy when you go to the beach on 4th of July weekend, but they're not, it's, the earth's not speeded, it's not speeding up too much because too much would create all kinds of havoc and life would be in an impossibility, and this planet would not be able to sustain life if all of that were just altered just one teeny tiny bit. Did any of you ask God for that today? But guess what? God did that today. But one day, God's going to say, okay, let me, change, let me change the tilt of the earth just a degree. Let me blow on the sun. You think it's hot now? Hold on just one second. You think it's hard to walk on those feeble knees now? Well, how about this? How about I just, how about I just shake, rattle, and roll this globe for just a moment? This creation that's coming uncreated as the creator is reminding his creation who is boss. That's what's happening here. God's justice is being upheld here. Now, interestingly enough, in spite of the release of this divine wrath, you, you still read about the refusal of human will. Verses 8 through 11, you, you, I read it a moment ago, won't go back and read it again, but, but what happens when, when these bold judgments are being poured out, when they're being scorched by heat? They curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They didn't repent. They didn't give him glory. Or when the fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast and the, the whole kingdom of the beast is plunged into darkness, what do people do? They gnawed at their tongues and they cursed the God of heaven. He's to, the, he's to be blamed for all of this. And they didn't repent of their deeds. You'd think that after 
a series of events like these would bring the world to its knees, the hearts of humanity would be melted and malleable, and you'd anticipate that the next verse might say something to this effect, that all the afflicted and all the confused and all the hurting would raise their hand and cry out to God for mercy. Surely a loving God would hear their cries and respond to those cries and forgive them and usher in forgiveness, and even at such a late hour, The prophet uh, Joel mentions this, Joel chapter 2, yet now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. He's gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in mercy, relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will turn or not and relent and leave a blessing behind him. We know that's in keeping with his character. But despite their misery, folks, listen, this shows you just how hardened in sin and rebellion this world under judgment has has become. Their hearts are hard and impenitent and calloused. Their faces are like flint. Their hearts are like granite. Rather than turn from their sin and cry out to the God who's sovereign, they, they curse his name. Even as their world is falling apart, they curse his name. Mm. One person said it this way, William Newell, men who will not be won by grace will never be won at all. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repent, isn't it? So you got all this darkness, but instead of crying out to the light, what do they do? They curse the light. And we know why that is. Jesus said this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Even today, people reject Jesus Christ. You can reject him so long that their hearts become calloused and hardened and indifferent and too hardened in sin. You ever heard anybody talk about being set in their ways? And the older we get, the more set in our ways we become. It's true, I, you know, I'll be 40 my next birthday, and that's, I'm a baby, and I, yeah, she, Mary Beth said, bless your heart. <laughs> but let me tell you something, I know a little bit more of what it is to be set in your ways than I did, say, 20 years ago. Amen. And I imagine 20 more years, I'm going to be a lot like them people I've pastored these last 20 years <laughs> who've been set in their ways. But think spiritually, you set in your way spiritually. People just say, no, I don't want God. I don't need God. That reminds me of what happens to Pharaoh. I mean, what is it in the Exodus after plague, after plague, after plague? The scripture talks about Pharaoh hardening his heart, his own heart. After five of those plagues that devastate Egypt, the Bible says that he hardened his heart and he refused to let Israel go. But after the sixth plague, something changes. Because the Bible says in Exodus 9, verse 12, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You harden your heart against God long enough, God says, okay, have it your way. And God gives you over to that depraved mind and that calloused heart, (coughs) seared conscience. So God judges the natural world. He judges the political world. 
Notice the angel pours out uh, his, uh, the fifth angel, I believe it is, he pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. Now, don't think of furniture here, of throne, but think of seat of power and authority. God is judging the political system of the beast. So these judgments cover the natural world, and now these judgments cover the political world. You get to the final plague, the seventh, the angel pours out his, the contents of his bowl on the air. Significant that air is mentioned there, atmosphere. The idea is that God is judging the spiritual realm. After all, what is the world of fallen man? It's, 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 who is in operation right now? The, the devil is the prince of the power of the air. And so the final plague that's going to be poured out when it's all said and done, it's going to be the judgment of the system, the air, the atmosphere that's come under the domain and tyranny of the devil and has been since Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> so when all these seven plagues are over, God's judgment will have been meted out. And Christ will have come and then he's going to remake the world. <laughs> and that's what we've got to look forward to because guess what? We're going to be right there with him ruling and reigning with him for a thousand years. And the prophets of Israel talked about a millennial a kingdom where the wolf and the lamb lie down together and where the child could play by the hole of an adder. Things that could not happen now because of this current climate and this fallen world. But when Jesus comes, and after it's all said and done, that's what we have to look forward to. And I bless his name. The ravages of war. I don't have time to get into all this. I'll come back to this later on. But the sixth angel, his bowl, poured out on the river Euphrates. The waters dried up, and it prepares the way for the kings from the east. Now, folks, listen to me. Listen very carefully. Ezekiel 38, 39 talks about kings from the north. Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, Rosh, Areas associated now with Moscow, Russia, other nations that are mentioned, Libya, Put, Egypt, Persia. You know which country right now was referred to as Persia up until post-World War I? You know what country it is now? Iran. The Bible talks about end-time alliances between Kings of the North, Russia, and Arabic countries. Think about so many Islamic countries and how you see them in league with Russia. Think about the things we see happening now, geopolitical alliances and that kind of thing. And now you've got kings from the east marching against, what's to the east? Iran, what's to the east of Iran? China. <laughs> and the very things that we see happening in the world, the stage is being set for Armageddon. And the world is barreling toward Armageddon and its countdown to Armageddon. And then the result of global wreckage, that's the last seventh bold judgment. I won't get into that, but you see verses 17 through 21, after it's all said and done, the powers that be will be shaken. The world will be undone. Chapter 19 says Jesus will come. Chapter 20, Jesus ushers in a perfect kingdom of righteousness for a thousand years. Folks, listen, aren't you glad that 
Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for you. Two cups mentioned in Scripture, really, when you think about it. There's the cup of divine wrath mentioned here at the end of Revelation chapter 16, which God pours out on unbelieving, unrepentant humanity. There's the cup that Jesus drank in his agony. Remember he prayed in the garden, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. What was the cup? It's the cup of suffering. The psalmist, I believe it's in Psalm, maybe 113, 116, talks about the cup of salvation, that God has reserved a cup of salvation for those who are his. Jesus drank the bitter cup of wrath so that I could drink from the cup of grace. But you refuse the cup of grace, make no mistake about it, you will drink from the cup of wrath. Would you stand with me for prayer tonight? Our Father and our God, Lord, tonight we come before you, Lord, with hearts that are sensitive and tender, minds that are curious, Lord, when we think about these subjects, and so much we don't understand, Lord, but the overarching principle is clear, you are a holy God, and therefore you must judge sin. Lord, thank you for grace, and thank you for the gospel, thank you for Jesus, and for the cross, and Lord, that we've been forgiven, and that any person can be saved. I've got to think about my family and my neighbors and the people that I live beside and interact with. And the average person tonight, Lord, in our town that doesn't realize they're just one heartbeat away from wrath. God, that should motivate us to be witnesses, to testify of your grace and your mercy. Use us, Lord, as your mouthpiece. Lord God, may we love people and preach the truth and be a gospel witness. Lord, we long for the kingdom of Jesus. And Lord, what we have to look forward to. May we not get discouraged by what we experience and what we see, Lord, in an unbelieving world. And I pray it tonight in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen.